This is Blight Christmas, invading your ears once again. I'm Sean Dillon. We've got a two-parter again today. First up, we have the second half of Patrick Harrigan's remarks upon a recent visitation. Please do not be fooled, despite beginning the same way as part one. This piece diverges from what you've already heard. More Remarks Upon a Visitation by Pat Harrigan Visiting friends in Europe earlier this month, I had the great pleasure of spending time with Professor Maxim Velenkov, formerly of St. Petersburg, but now along with his family, a permanent resident of England, where he teaches Russian language and literature at a certain well-known and ancient university. Being thoughtful and easy of manner, Professor Velenkov's holiday parties are well attended by his students and colleagues, and I had the pleasure of witnessing, in his rooms, the life of the mind in full, albeit subdued, display. We doled out the punch, we decorated together the small tasteful tree and cracked our crackers, and the young women and men, released from the obligations of their term, but not yet delivered unto the mercies of their individual families, displayed their wit and flirted with each other, and were altogether beautiful. After a time, everyone departed, and I found myself nearly alone in Professor Valenkov's chambers. The professor himself left to comfort his granddaughter, who had been woken by the noise of the party and was suffering from night terrors. But we would breakfast together in the morning, he said. As a winter storm was raging, I would, of course, stay the night on the sofa, comfortable enough with the fire drawn up, and not the first time I had imposed on the professor's hospitality in this way. So it was that I found myself unexpectedly alone with the elderly Professor James, to whom I had not been introduced during the party. He sat down across the table from me, and in the light of the fire we grew acquainted. Professor James proved a sharp and witty man, a born storyteller, and if I cannot perfectly remember the tale he told me that night, it reflects more on myself. It had been a long evening, I beg your indulgence, than it does on the professor. Let me tell you a story about a young woman of my acquaintance, he said, to which I eagerly assented. To the best of my recollection, this is the story Professor James told me. It concerned a young woman, recently widowed. Her husband was a soldier and had been killed by the enemy in some remote desert place. The shock of this news also perhaps contributed to the second part of the tragedy, for shortly thereafter the young woman suffered a late-term miscarriage and lost the child she was bearing. In a short space, the life she believed she was cultivating, making two people into three, had reversed itself and left her once again a single, lonesome human being. Professor James told me that she recovered from her grief with admirable quickness, but there was something in the professor's demeanor that leads me to think he was not overfamiliar with the interior lives of women. So I wondered what her true feelings were when, a year or so later, she enrolled in the professor's college to study architecture. Grief and loneliness, surely. But here I am speculating beyond what is warranted. The young woman, slightly older than most of the other students, became a sort of big sister figure to them, and her diligence and close attention to detail was much remarked upon by her instructors. 
Professor James, an authority on medieval buildings, had her as a student in only one class, but it was enough to form a special bond between the two, and they spent many hours in the professor's rooms engaging in high talk about the history of design. Naturally, he conducted her through the college's great chapel, but to his dismay, this revealed a gulf in their sensibilities. In the massive stained glass, the fan-vaulted ceiling, the mighty rude-screened organ, and the carved cherubs of the baldacchino, the professor saw an efflorescence of ornamentation dedicated to the glory of God. But the young woman saw nothing but contortions of space, petrifaction, pitiless last judgments, and the malice of wooden goblins. It's like a yellowing scrapbook of Christianity, she explained, but not unkindly, and she smiled and laid her hand lightly on his arm. In that Christmas season, which was an especially cold and bitter one, the rooms could not be kept warm, and the river froze solid and shone argent in the sun. The steam pipes buckled and split, if not continually attended to, and the masters taught their classes in coats and gloves. Our young woman, having no family of her own and out of compassion for the staff who would otherwise stay behind, volunteered to tend the college buildings for the duration of the break. The college supplied provisions for her meals, and after a farewell tea with Professor James in his underheated rooms, which he extended for as long as possible, silly old man that he was, until, not that she presented any impatience, even he could not deny his own foolishness, and finally bundled himself away. She was left alone among the blocks upon blocks of empty brick buildings, like a mouse within the walls of Gormenghast. During these weeks, she kept herself busy with boilers and pipes and natural gas lines and telephone messages taken and cans of soup to prepare. She was well advanced in her studies and took this time to draw up notes for a future thesis on the use of negative space and architectural form. There was little to do except to work and think. She did not have the gift of a strong imagination. Professor James called her level-headed. So she was surprised one afternoon while wrestling with a valve to discover herself thinking that the intermittent halting sound made by the overhead pipes sounded to her something like that of a child sobbing. It was ridiculous, but once the idea was there, it would not leave, and she found herself more reluctant each day to descend into the cellars to perform the necessary maintenance. Forcing herself, she did the work as quickly as possible and returned to her apartment, where the sound of the gas fireplace could obscure the underlying lamentation of the pipes. There came a day when she could not bring herself to leave her quarters. She sat at her window thinking of nothing, only admiring in an abstract way the lines of the college buildings and the adapting angles of their shadows as the sun fell upon the short day. In the late afternoon, she thought she could make herself something to eat at last, but before she could rise from the window, a distant movement caught her attention. It was not a fox on the snow or the shifting of bare branches against the sky, but something larger and more purposeful moving along the dark wall of the college chapel. Two figures, in fact, she thought it was, a tall one and a short one, close together, the taller perhaps leading the smaller by the hand. Yes, an adult and a child 
moving in and out of the twilight shadows, leaving no traces that she could see upon the snow. Soon the glare from her lamps upon the gathering frost began to obscure the view from the window, and she lost sight of the figures, so she extinguished all the lights and sat unmoving in the cold and noiseless night, peering in vain to see where they had gone. She made no guess as to their destination, and held in her own breast no anticipation or fear, but only the calmest of all possible hearts. The noise from the pipes began again, but only softly, as if whoever had been weeping was finally falling asleep. As it died away to silence, she began to nod off, but wakened suddenly at a sharp and insistent knocking on the panels of her apartment door. She jerked an alarm, her imagination again, certainly, a phantom hypnagogic sound, and of this she had convinced herself until in her new undeniable clarity the knocking came again and again, and this time it was accompanied by a fainter tapping, syncopated erratically with the first, coming, she had no doubt, from a lower panel of the apartment door, as if from the lighter hand of a tinier figure stretching its arm upward and seeking admission in imitation of its larger parent. At this point, I must apologize to my audience. There is some sort of foreshortening in my memory. Whatever it was that Professor James told me at this point has vanished from my mind, except in its fuzziest outline. There was a conversation of some sort, I remember, and lively images in the snow gleaming under a million stars. And I believe she kissed someone, though exactly who that might have been I can't imagine. When the first staff members returned after Christmas, they found the steam pipes all frozen, many of them burst wide apart, and several of the lecturers' rooms, including that of Professor James, were covered thick, walls, floors, and ceiling with a hard, spiky frost. To restore them to their previous condition was an arduous, time-consuming, and expensive project. No one knew where the woman had gone until Professor James received a letter from her some months later. In it, she related the events I have just described and revealed that she had departed that night on foot through the snow, though not unaccompanied, she said, and after much tribulation had departed for Australia, where the professor believes she still resides, in order, and again these are her words, to experience the seasons in an upside-down order. The professor had no wish to alert the bursar as to her whereabouts, and it seems that I was the only person to whom he ever told this story. By this time it was quite late, and I was soon asleep. In the morning, alone in Professor Vilenkov's lodging, frost and snow screened the windows from the sun, and the fire was extinct, so I awoke somewhat dispirited into a weak and indifferent blue light. My friend soon collected me for breakfast, his granddaughter left sleeping in the arms of some relative, but he made no mention of Professor James, and I did not ask about him. At the station, Valenkov and I made our pleasant goodbyes. Later that afternoon, debarking from the train and about to hail a taxi to the airport, I encountered a woman on the street pushing a baby carriage. They call it a pram over there. She was unkempt, 
clearly in distress and begging for money. I gave her what cash I had on me and leaned down to see her child, but when I shifted the blanket, there was no child there, but something ugly carved out of wood. It had a stink to it, like something rotten, newly thawing, and it had silver nails pounded in where the eyes should be. She thanked me in a groveling, embarrassing way for the few pounds I had given her, and after a long and terrible flight full of bad dreams about the future and a grinding ride through this evening's snow, I have arrived just in time, it seems, for my appointed hour in front of you at this lectern, my friends. With the light the way it is here on this stage, I have no way of evaluating your reaction, but I hope that these remarks have met with some measure of your approval. And although the winds are blowing even a little stronger, I think, I will still wish you, each and every one of you, another season of happy holidays. Thank you, and good night. And second up, we have Rob Ward's On This the Dusk of Sue's Depravity, inspired by John Milton's On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. While I hate to spoil anything, I do feel compelled to warn you that this gets into some pretty grisly body horror. So please know your limits, and as Rob himself advised me, maybe don't listen to this right after you eat. On This the Dusk of Sue's Depravity by Rob Ward Inspired by John Milton's On the Morning of Christ's Nativity Apartment 206, a dwelling brusque, Where Sue Adamski let the viper strike, A scent of death seeps from a bruised husk, Victim and the honeyham alike. As Susan embodied a vengeful shrike and embraced behavior cruel and roughshod on birthday of the man called Son of God. Back to the afternoon of day's delight, before the cause of responders' nightmares, a Christmas tree with garland and cute lights, cinnamon and pints, and filled the air, and gift bags set with generous love and care. A dinner planned with joyful merry glee, a night to set her such tortured heart free. A small buzz on the phone announced her paramour, him who surrounded the hostess with clouds, the man who caused poor Susan both fear and mourn, with love and hatred, pride and courage cowed, for yes, I love you, he did not avow. Two years did she long for the man's full heart, instead of twelve minutes before he'd part. Her friends and colleagues told her to stay aground. This man, named Keith, had used her like a toy, but their worried anger made her to him bound. Those closest to her made her feel so dense. She felt someday cruel Keith would come to some sense. She opened the door to embrace this man, but one lackluster hug, and her fears again began. The wine she poured and swayed to soft music. She tried to hide her pain with wide, bright smile, yet anxious pangs inside her made her sick. Dinner will be served in just a while. She reached out to his face with needs tactile. He turned his face away from her smooth hand. That gesture he meanly made gave her a throat of sand. I have to leave here soon, my friends at the saloon. But Keith, 
she said. I prepared all this stuff. Look, Sue, I know it sucks, but I can't let her stay stuck. That place is in a neighborhood that's rough. God damn it, Keith. You only want more. What am I to you? An idiot? A whore? I finally get you here, and again you act weird. Again, you just don't care how I feel. And all this work, you taunt. My body's all you want. Keith's resolve was not made of tempered steel. This game he played with Sue, it was getting too real. It was time to go home. All right, it's true, it's true. I thought that we'd just screw. I care for you a lot. Again, that damn tune. My life is just too much. There's always down the line. Sue grabbed her hair with tears, her heart in ruin. That line is never-ending, Keith. Behind his back she stormed and grabbed the plastic wreath. She stood next to the door while her salty tears poured, but as his hand reached out to turn the lock, the wreath slipped round his neck and pulled him off his trek. Flat on his ass, he looked at Sue with shock. I can't believe you do that, Sue. The night's not over yet, and Keith, this day you'll rue. He threw the cheap wreath off and got up with a scoff and fell again with mighty crashing blow, concussed with eardrum popped, sweet scent of peppermint schnapps, broken glass and glimmering lights did glow, clear liquor and red blood drenched Keith's brow. Susan's heart had cracked her mind. Shit, and's here and now. Using a once-hung stocking, she did his mouth a docking and stabbed him with her glassy bayonet. Using a string of lights, she hogtied him up tight and dragged him to the tiny kitchenette. Equal in size and in great shape, it took little effort to drape rug against his gape. She stared into his eyes, deciding his demise. She inhaled deep the nickel smell of blood and more our suited crave to host a violent rave, a salamander to a gastropod. Electric carving fork and claw, up and down his restrained legs she drag and draw. She started at the hip, denim and body rip. The speeding blade started to shift and pop. It sputtered at the knee but didn't stop the spree. Subcutaneous tissue flew like wasp. Yellow and pink gore sprayed her face. I shall have vengeance, she said with hard orthoclase. With violent butchered quakes, poor Keith started to shake. His tattered flesh burned like a dying sun. In horrid agony from Susan's depravity, all he could do was watch his life force run. Though silent from the utter shock, he felt his joints ripped, crushed, stabbed with every thwack. Around the bent-up blade thus formed a funny braid. What she thought was skin was the meniscus. And from the hot stove a devious trove, overcooked gravy so hot and so viscous, was poured inside the incised leg. With muffled screeches and hollers, Keith began to beg. His sobs fell on deaf ears as Susan took the shears and scissored off a foot or two of skin. She made a tourniquet, and ripped a mighty rip, the once blue walls turned shades of Eoxin. Relieved of morals, Sue felt much joy. Gaslighting gone forever, and there lied the boy. Dripping fleshy manhide on kitchen floor did lie, 
while Susan warmed the cheese knife o'er a flame. Tourniquet made tighter, he spat the sock to biter, a corkscrew twisted and the family name, eunuched and leg-skin devoid, Sue's vengeance not yet sated, not till he was destroyed. The other leg she grabbed, with cheese knife she did stab, before long it looked just like its brother. The arms, both right and left, suffered bloody theft. Maximally flayed, he yelled out for mother. Sadly, the torture failed to halt. She drowned his flesh with cups of Himalayan salt. In this searing abyss, Keith couldn't hold his piss. Urine flowed and burned down his exposed thigh. Then projectile vomit spewed from him like a comet. Would not a merciful God just let him die? He opened his mouth to howl. Five green acrylic nails dug deep into his jowls. A poke of heated blade, his tongue on tile laid. Sanguine pudding slid up and down his throat. As Susan's red dress swerved, the thread struck every nerve. Agony threw meat atop the warm moat. Wild eyes of pure black, she looked odd. She superseded the wrath of Old Testament God. His teeth chipped from grinding. Sue cut off his binding. Through the pools of humor, she made him crawl. Feel the flesh beneath you. Crawl, crawl through your own goo. Do not stop until you touch the wall. He crawled like an alligator, as his exposed back was torn with a cheese grater. Though damnedest he did try, of course, duh, no surprise, he never made it past the kitchen sink. Oh, from his ripped back flare, peeled skin and peach fuzz hair, they stood like gravestones in a tide of pink. Thus came the faintest death rattle. But just one more thing before the end of battle. A single slice around his puffy face, with serrated bread knife, apex of Christmas strife, cheeks torn apart like dough and sounded like Velcro. She wore it on her visage without grace. Made worse by one iota was Susan's bad impression of John Travolta. Twitching like a squashed ant, spewing blood with each pant, Sue was ready to end Keith's misery, all weight on his belly. Susan asked, tell me that you never loved Susan Adamski. Too much blood lost, he said not a peep. Wearing his face, she took the knife and cut deep below the rib she carved, around the belly charged, his stomach skin was thrown off like a tarp. And with her hands she scooped organs, veins, and goop. So close to death, mouth agape like a carp, Keith's final breath was not wasted. For Sue made sure he knew how his own bladder tasted. Exhausted by the deed, she poured a glass of mead and ate honey-baked ham atop his corpse. It didn't make her squeam to eat berries and cream. A floating rib became her makeshift fork. Though caked in humors, ooze, and more, she bothered not to wash before she slept in gore. With freshest hint of rot, the pests ran flu and trot, vermin banquet laid out for Christmas time, seasoned small intestine, slippery green bile wine, a fresh synovia stew was served with chyme, maggots, flies, cockroaches, mice, and rat feasted on the carcass so jovial and fat. Before the break of dawn, police were on the lawn, 
The downstairs neighbor's ceiling leaked maroon. Coming up the stairs, it stung every nose hair, a horrid stench to which none were immune. With terrified speed, they breached the room, an apartment no longer. This was Death's Lagoon. Adamski went quiet. The news had a riot with pictures of Sue's second face. Everyone on scene went into therapy, several retired after this damned case. All folks in the city wondered, how could what woman have such a moral sunder? But see, Sue is free. To stay in Shakopee, behind a plate of polycarbonate glass. For Susan's nativity was a violent festivity. Was this Wyoming, she would have got the gas. Forever with bloodthirsty haunt, for Christmas depravity was all that she'd want. In these spirited times, forget not these rhymes of Susan Adamski's gory parade. In heart's domain you must be careful who you trust, for some humans live solely in charade. And, if the season drags your soul into debt, will you embrace forgiving peace? Or will you seek the kitchenette? The Dead North Podcast and Blight Christmas are a production of Oncoming Productions with assistance from Hot Chocolate Media. I have been your host, Sean Dillon, and intro and outro music are by Eric Ostrom. The copyrights for all pieces are held by their creators. If you would like to support the artists who've created this work, we'd love your support. There's a link to our PayPal fund in the show notes. We all wish you a very happy holiday season with just enough chills to make you appreciate the warmth of home, friends, and family. Stay safe out there. <laughs>